morning, Incarnation. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And I should start by saying, Happy Pentecost Sunday! Yes. Pentecost is a season that starts 50 days after Easter. And uh, so about 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, Acts 2-2 records that the Holy Spirit descended upon the church like a mighty rushing wind. In fact, this was not the first time that the Holy Spirit had been compared to the wind. Because in John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again of water and of the Spirit. And Nicodemus, he doesn't understand Jesus. Uh, he thinks he's take, he takes Jesus literally. He says, well, how can somebody, you know, be born a second time? Must I enter my mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're not, you're not understanding me here. And uh, he clarifies in John 3, uh, beginning at verse 6, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. But he says, that which is, which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he mentions the wind. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying that the Spirit is like the wind. It's invisible. It's unpredictable. But we still hear it. And we still see evidence of the Holy Spirit's power. And Jesus is saying that that's what it's like when somebody's born again. An invisible miracle takes place. Did you know that? When somebody begins to put their faith in Jesus, it's a miracle from heaven. The Holy Spirit fills them with greater love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all the fruit of the Spirit. And that's proceeding from God Himself. And they become children of the Spirit. Or we might say children of the wind. Now some of you might know that the word for spirit in Greek is pneuma. Which is exactly the same word as it happens for wind. Both those words are used for spirit, for wind, it depends on the context. So here Jesus is actually making a play on words. And in fact, the word pneuma had another meaning that comes out of our gospel reading for today. Will you turn there with me to John 20, starting at verse 9, uh, excuse me, uh, starting at verse 19, it's on page 906. I think this is a particularly relevant passage for us to study uh, during the transition from Easter to the Pentecost season, because in it, the resurrected Jesus, so Jesus is resurrected, he's appearing to his disciples for the first time, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, receive the pneuma hagion. Now we mentioned that in Greek this word can mean spirit or wind, but depending on the context, it can also actually mean breath. Pneuma can mean breath as well. So here Jesus breathes on his disciples. He sends his wind upon the disciples in order to impart his own life-giving spirit. It's just as it like in the beginning, when God formed man, remember he gathered the dust from the ground that he breathed in. The Gospel of John says that Jesus has life within himself. And so when he's going to do not just creation here, but new creation, he breathes on them. He breathes on them to impart his life, to impart his spirit. And you know, in the early church, it was interesting, 
they used to practice, uh, they used to have kind of a weird practice during baptism. Um, when you would get baptized, the priest who was baptizing you would blow on you. Now, I don't know how much that would fly nowadays with, you know, modern sensibilities. Uh, but, uh, but I think it was a really cool symbol. A really cool symbol of what's going on here with Jesus. And I know um, that we have among us today some fans of the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> and I gotta say that maybe my favorite book of the seven is the sixth book called The Silver Chair. And uh, it starts off with this really, really cool scene. So there's this young lady named Jill Pole, and she's on top of this mountain. She's in this forest on top of the mountain, and she's talking with Aslan. And Aslan is giving her specific instructions that she has to remember. And it's for a mission that he's giving her in Narnia. He's saying, listen to these instructions, rehearse them, remember them. I I'm going to give you a mission in Narnia. And she says, please, sir, I don't know how to get to Narnia. How am I going to get there, she says. And Aslan answers, on my breath. On my breath. Raids on her, and she coasts in the air over the seas all the way to Narnia. It's just a really cool scene of this young girl coasting on the, the golden warm breath of Aslan. Sometimes she's laying down and rolling around. It describes the scene uh, in detail. And I think this is a symbol of what's going on here in John chapter 20. Because they too were given a mission. And it was too hard for them to accomplish on their own power. How do we get started? How do we get started? And Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus was the original apostle. He was the original sent one. And he said to his apostles, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. It was sort of like a mini Pentecost 50 days early. And in some sense, we could say that this life-giving breath, this wind of Jesus, kept blowing and blowing. And a few weeks later, it falls upon the rest of the church, young and old, male and female, slave and free. But it doesn't stop there. It just keeps blowing, keeps pouring out throughout the book of Acts and down to our time today at Incarnation in Tallahassee. The wind of the Spirit, the breath of Jesus is still blowing out. People. Amen? Amen. So let's follow this wind this morning. This morning, would you please turn with me to Acts 21, page 930 in your pew Bible. And as you turn there, I'll have the children stand, ages 4 to 9. I'm going to pray for you. Release you to Children's Church. Children 4 to 9, please stand. All right, got it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would breathe on these children this morning. Mm. And just as John the Baptist jumped in his mother's womb before he was even born, we pray that you would be doing a hidden work in the hearts of these children at Children's Church. Speak to them through your words, speak to them through their fellowship, speak to them through their teachers. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So we only have two messages left. In our series on the book of Acts, next week John will preach about the end of Paul's journey to Rome, where he's placed under house arrest and awaits his opportunity to preach the gospel to the Roman emperor, to Caesar himself. 
And today, we're looking at Paul's journey to Jerusalem in Acts 21, 1 through 14, where he'll preach the gospel. He'll await to preach the gospel to the high priest, Ananias, and to all the leaders in Jerusalem. So the rest of the book of Acts is a story of two journeys. Paul's journey to Jerusalem to eventually preach the gospel to the high priest, Ananias, and then many, many chapters of Paul's journey waiting to speak to the emperor, to Caesar, to preach the gospel to him in Rome. And I want to draw out three things from this passage. First, something historical. Second, something about the second generation disciples. And third, something about following the Spirit. So first, we'll start with something historical. Because at this point, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, rejoins Paul on his journey. Did you notice that in your reading this morning? We know that Luke is present for two reasons. First, instead of telling the story in third person, instead of continuing to tell it in that way, Luke begins to use the word we throughout this section. We came by a straight course. We went aboard. We sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. In verse 12, Luke even includes himself among those who urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem for fear of his safety. And the other reason we can be sure that Luke is present at this stage in the story is that it gets much more detailed. Did you notice that? Mm -hmm. One scholar notes that for this section, Luke obviously drew on his diary because he mentions three or four specific stops followed by three landings. And as always, Luke's account of seafaring and geography is incredibly accurate. When the famous archaeologist Sir William Ramsey first began his work in Asia Minor, he expected the book of Acts to be wildly inaccurate. But after his investigation, he said this, Luke is a historian of first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. So in other words, this is not a legendary account. This is a literal historical record of an actual journey. Luke, of course, was not only the author of the book of Acts, but he also wrote the Gospel of Luke, which bears his name, the third Gospel. So together, between Luke and Acts, Luke is the only Gentile author that we know of in the Bible, Old or New Testament, but he accounts for a roughly 25% of the New Testament together. Very important author. And although Luke himself was not an eyewitness to Jesus, during his travels with Paul, and particularly during this stretch, we'll see he was able to meet and interview many of the eyewitnesses who knew Jesus personally. So this was not written or recorded you know, some distant generation three or four hundred years after Jesus. This is happening in real time. So we know, for example, later in this chapter, Luke met Jesus' brother James in Jerusalem. He met Jesus' brother. We also know that Luke spent two and a half years hanging out in the Holy Land while he was waiting for Paul. Paul was in prison in Caesarea, which is two days' walk from Jerusalem. So for two and a half years, Luke was walking distance from Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. For two and a half years, Luke was walking distance from Peter's hometown in Capernaum. He was walking distance from Jerusalem. What do you think Luke was doing for two and a half years? Well, in the words of John Stott, I tell you the truth, he was not sunbathing on the Sea of Galilee. (laughs) He was meeting the eyewitnesses. He was visiting the actual towns and places where Jesus walked and probably even spending time with the Virgin Mary herself, because it's from the pen of Luke that we get so many stories about the Virgin Mary. 
So this stuff in the book of Acts is not myth, guys. This is carefully compiled history. It's a carefully compiled account. All right, so something about history. Paul and Luke are making their way to Jerusalem. Next, I want us to see something about these second-generation disciples. And what I want us to notice is that the wind of the Spirit has continued to blow. That mighty wind that fell upon the church in Acts chapter 2, it didn't just shut off at some point. The miraculous power of God is still at work, especially through the gift of prophecy we see in this passage. For example, in verse 4 it says that through the Spirit, the disciples in Tyre were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. In verse 9 we hear that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That's kind of a cool detail, right? We don't hear anything else, but we learn that he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And then in verse 10, we meet the strange character, a prophet named Agabus, who comes down from Jerusalem. And in a move reminiscent of the symbolic actions of the Old Testament prophets, he takes Paul's belt and he binds his own hands and he binds his own legs and he says, this is what's going to happen to the person who owns this belt if they go on to Jerusalem. They're going to be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. Clearly, the spirit that fell at Pentecost was still spreading as the church made disciples in new places. Amen? And it's not just the gift of prophecy we hear about. We're also reminded of the crucial gift of evangelism, of sharing Christ with those who don't know him through Philip the Evangelist. I like that that's like his title now, Philip the Evangelist, who hosted them in his house in Caesarea. Now, Philip, if you remember, was one of the seven deacons that was appointed in Acts chapter 6. And it was probably from hanging out with him that Luke learned the stories that he later incorporated into Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8, if you think about it. And if you think about it, this was probably a pretty difficult moment of reconciliation between Philip and Paul. Because remember, back before Paul's conversion, that he was one of the people giving approval to the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and that was one of the seven, that was one of Philip's friends. And so seeing Paul now, missionary Paul, Christian Paul, and hosting him in his house, I mean, that's an act of serious reconciliation. That was a long time ago. And the last time we saw Philip in the book of Acts was about 20 years prior in Acts chapter 8 in the episode of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. I would say, in many ways, Philip the Evangelist was sort of a precursor to Paul the missionary. Right? He was the first to plant a church among the Samaritans, among these sort of half-Jews, and he was the first to evangelize someone from Africa. And I'll bet he was amazed to sit around the fire and hear from Paul about how the gospel had spread in Turkey and in Greece and in all around the Mediterranean I mean, it would have just been cool to sit there and listen to these two missionaries share stories, wouldn't it have been? And Paul was clearly riding the same wind that first poured out upon Philip in the old days back in Jerusalem. So the wind of the Spirit was still blowing, even among the second generation of disciples. And that wind is still blowing today. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Now thirdly, this passage has something important to teach us about following the Spirit. And this is really a crucial lesson, friends. It can be summarized in this way. That just because the Holy Spirit is warning you about suffering 
doesn't mean that he wants you to avoid it. Just because the Holy Spirit is warning you about suffering, it doesn't mean he wants you to avoid it. That's really the point of tension in this passage, isn't it? Paul believes he's called by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, but the disciples keep warning him by the same Holy Spirit not to go. So the disciples entire warn him in verse 4. The prophet Agabus dramatizes this warning in verse 11. And in response, Luke writes in verse 12, When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul is resistant to their warnings. He responds, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? And here it's not just an emotion he's, he's referring to. The Greek here can mean weakening my resolve. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you feel the tension, guys? Mm-hmm. Not only are they in disagreement about what Paul should do, but the Holy Spirit is involved on both sides. Does the Holy Spirit contradict himself? That's kind of part of the tension of this passage. You might remember, actually, that Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders in the passage that John preached on last week. He said that it was the Holy Spirit who compelled him to go to Jerusalem. He told them in Acts 20, beginning at verse 22, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, now listen to this part because it's important for later, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So the Holy Spirit constrained him to go to Jerusalem, but on the other hand, the Holy Spirit testified to him that in every city, suffering awaited him. The Holy Spirit's like, that's where you're going. You're going to suffer. It reminds me, right after the Holy Spirit falls on Jesus in his baptism, what happens right after that? The Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right? That's what happens when Jesus is filled by the Holy Spirit and is following the Holy Spirit. He's led into a desolate place. Paul goes on to say, But I did not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So skipping back up to Acts 21, one interpreter poses the question well. He asks, Are we to blame Paul for his obstinacy or admire him for his unshakable resolve? Should we blame him for his obstinacy or admire him for his unshakable resolve? And he goes on to say, Luke surely intends us to admire Paul for his courage and perseverance. Like Jesus before us, he set set his face steadfastly to go up to Jerusalem. And like Jesus again, the divine predictions of suffering did not deter him. And here I think this interpreter is exactly right. So the key to understanding this disagreement, in the words of John Stott, is to draw a distinction between prediction and prohibition. Prediction and prohibition. So through the disciples, the Holy Spirit was predicting that Paul would suffer. That's what was going on. He's among the disciples and the Holy Spirit is predicting, you're going to suffer. And and, and as that's being predicted, they're like, oh, well, well, don't go. But the Holy Spirit was not prohibiting him from going to Jerusalem. The Spirit was predicting that. And in their love, they were saying, we don't want to lose you, brother. 
Paul already said he was constrained by the Spirit to go, whatever the cost. And this is really the central theme of this passage because Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. And like Jesus, as it says in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Never mind the suffering which Jesus prophesied about many, many times. And here Paul is setting his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And like Jesus before him, Paul is discouraged away from suffering by the disciples. Remember, Jesus' own disciples said, Lord, this should never be. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. They're tempting him away from the cross. But Jesus knows there's no crown without the cross. Now, eventually, Paul's friends come around. In verse 14, it says, And since he would not be persuaded... Paul's a very obstinate man. We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. (laughs) And I think in some ways, this is almost like the church's version of Gethsemane. Right? Because Jesus was wrestling in the garden. Should I go to the cross? This is difficult. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And after that time of prayer, right, the Lord would always form in the kiln of prayer in Jesus' heart. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. And here the church is hearing, they're being guaranteed through many, many prophecies that Paul is indeed going to suffer. And after they wrestle with it for a while, they eventually just say, all right, not my will, but the will of the Lord be done. Amen? Amen. The point is that for Paul, riding the wind of the Spirit meant the same thing as taking up his cross and following Jesus. It's the same for us, guys. But we often associate life in the Spirit with just success and wealth and favor and power. Right? That's what we say. If we have the Holy Spirit, things are not going to be hard. Things are not going to be difficult for us. But that's a two-dimensional view of life in the Spirit. It's not a biblical view. Time and time again, these apostles who are filled by the Spirit are led into suffering, led into difficult places. The Holy Spirit always leads God's people to take up their cross and follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit leads to Calvary. That's where the Spirit is calling us. And it's important for us to know that so that when marriage gets difficult, we don't say, oh, maybe the Holy Spirit isn't in this anymore. Or like we get to a difficult point in a ministry that God has called us to and we say, I don't know. It seems hard. It just seems like maybe God's not in this. Right? This is what we do. We associate our ease with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Praise God that Jesus didn't do that. Praise God that the Apostle Paul didn't do that. Guys, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us into, to press us into difficult things in our lives. Maybe you're called to carry to care for, you know, an elderly person. Maybe you're called to care for a child in secret for several decades. And it's sapping years from your life and you say, surely this can't be the call of the Holy Spirit on my life. It is if you're following a cruciformed Messiah. So after being arrested in Jerusalem, Paul remains a prisoner for the rest of the book of Acts. 
Following the Spirit does not mean that we avoid suffering. All right, let me summarize and begin to draw to a close. As we've looked at Acts 11, Acts 21, excuse me, we've noticed something historical, that this is carefully compiled historical truth. We've noticed something about the second generation disciples, that they too had the Holy Spirit. They were still riding the wind of Pentecost. And we've learned something about following the Spirit. That sometimes following the Holy Spirit means embracing suffering. Guys, it means victory too. It means encouragement. It means peace. But don't just think because it gets hard that it's the Holy Spirit's not in that anymore. Now before drawing to a close, I want to look back for a minute at Pentecost and at Jesus breathing on his disciples because I want us to be clear that Jesus still longs to breathe on us today. He still longs to breathe on us today. We're still riding that same wind of the Spirit. And I think the Spirit reminds us in a variety of ways. In fact, in many ways, this missional community vision that we believe that God gave us in this community where we're planting these decentralized missions and stuff like that, we've seen some good fruit from that, but it's been hard. And we've recently been sort of wrestling with that, like, what do we do with this? What kind of moves can we make? How can we strategize about this? How can we be smarter about this? And I think there's a place for strategy. And somebody in this community recently prophesied, actually. Um, you, might, you might summarize it in the words of Zechariah 4.6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I think there's a lot of gifts there's a lot of intelligence. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of sacrifice at this church. But the Lord wants us to know, that's not how I'm going to build my house. I'm going to build my house by my spirit. And so, Lord, I say right now, we don't know what we're doing. Amen? Amen. Want to say it with me? We don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> our sacrifice, we haven't ratcheted our sacrifice up enough. We don't know enough. We don't have enough gifts. We don't have enough talent to do the miraculous things that the Lord wants us to do. Yeah. Amen. We need Aslan to breathe on us so that we can ride the wind. We need Jesus to breathe on us so that we have power from heaven. But we also need Jesus to breathe on us to remind us of the great love of God. I'm convinced that's the thing we need to come back to. That God loves us. God loves us, guys. The grace of God. The grace of God shown in the face of our suffering Messiah who died for you out of love for you. Sinners such as we are. That's the love of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. Don't you love that image? Poured into our hearts. One translation says, shed abroad in our hearts. By the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need to know that God loves us. We need the safety and security of that kind of divine love if we're going to live this life that God has for us. Some of you guys might know an artist from back in the 60s named Donovan. He was influenced by, by Bob Dylan. And he wrote a song in 1965 called Catch the Wind. And it wasn't a very popular song. Uh, but since, it's actually been covered by dozens of artists, and I hear it in commercials and stuff all the time. And you know the song. It has a nice lullaby-ish melody, but the main thrust of the song, actually, if you listen to the lyrics, it's actually really sad. It's actually really sad because it's this guy 
saying, if I could just have you love me, if I could have the sort of security and warmth of your love, that's where I need to be. That's what I need in my life. But he says, ah, but I may as well try and catch the wind. It's fleeting. It's fleeting. He wants her love, but it's fleeting. Let me read some of the lyrics. He says, in the chilly hours and minutes of uncertainty, I want to be in the warm hold of your loving mind to feel you all around me and to take your hand along the sand. Ah, but I may as well try and catch the wind. That's sad. That's sad. The thing that his heart most longs for, he knows he can't have. I mean, it's a song of despair, really. Later on, he says this. Let me sing it. But don't, don't get distracted by my Bob Dylan-like vocals. He says, when rain is hung, the leaves are tears. I want you near to kill my fears, to help me to leave all my blues behind. For standing in your heart is where I want to be and long to be. Ah, but I may as well try and catch the wind. Ah, but I may as well try and catch the wind. When I think of that song, I want to meet Donovan, and I want to grab him by the shoulders, and I want to shake him. <laughs> and I want to ask him, brother, what if the wind could catch you? What if the wind could catch you? What if the love that you really think you need is there for you and has always been there for you? Because that's what we get in the message of the gospel. That's the kind of love, the kind of love that he's longing for. That's the kind of love that's available for us in the heart of our God. Brothers, the good news of the gospel is that there is an unconditional love that holds us in his loving mind and kills our fears. And we don't have to try to catch the wind because the wind catches us. It breathes upon us. Amen. Amen.